Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sober, Busy Living Sober, Busy Living Sober, episode 188 with Kate Russell. Hi, Kate. Hi. Are you going song with you? Excuse me? Okay, that I sang, sang your song with you? I love that you sang my song with me. <laughs> I told you. I'm listening to every episode and I'm like, I sing it along at home. It's so funny because I sometimes think maybe I should get like a real, like, you know, musician and a songwriter, but let's face it, I'm campy. It's better this way. It's much better this way. It feels more natural. Yeah, it is. It's authentic. It really is. It's me organically, organically. So tell us, well, for one, I do want to point out, this is kind of a big day. Okay. It's a big day for Kate. And- the reason it's a big day for Kate is that she is celebrating. It's nine years, right? Nine years of continuous sobriety. Oh, bro. Can you believe that? <laughs> Nobody's more surprised than me. <laughs> How'd you do it? I always say, how did you do it? Uh, uh, God, you know, it gets, I would say, I, you know, all the cliches one day at a time and all that stuff. Meetings. I mean, I had to dive headfirst into a 12-step recovery program because when I was out there using uh, the longest I could, I ever got of continuous sobriety on my own white knuckling, it was two weeks. And I remember thinking that was the hardest two weeks. I don't think I can do that again. Like I, like I, and you know what it was like, yeah, you know, you set rules for yourself and even keeping my rules, I'm not going to drink and smoke pot on the same day. I'm not going to have more than two drinks. I'm whatever. All these, these rules, keeping those rules was so hard that I knew that if I was to, it it was, it was easier to get sober than it, it was going to be easier for me to get sober than to continue to try to white knuckle control and enjoy everything. Um, and so I had to dive headfirst into sobriety and that's what I recommend, like dive headfirst into recovery. That's what I recommend. Like, that's what worked for me. I don't know what's going to work for everybody else, but for me, I had to dive into meetings, fellowship. I had to get friends. I had to make friends in recovery. Um, uh, you know, sponsor, do the work, do the steps. Cause you have to, it's like you grow or you go, right? Like you have to do the work. You have to change. You have to, uh, have an entire complete psychic change or you're going to go back out and drink. And you start to see that you're like, and you say this term a lot, which I like, I love to use the term peeling back the layers of the onion. That's what you do. You start peeling back the layers of the onion. I did not realize that I drank and used for relief until I was like seven years sober when I realized I wanted relief. And I, it dawned on me that, oh, oh, that's what drugs and alcohol did for me. I didn't even realize. I thought I just liked it. I just thought I drank and used because it was fun. I had no like more, like I didn't know that it was doing anything for me until I took away, until I took it away. Um, so, you know, I did it one day at a time and like, it's easy. I would say it is easier to get sober than, than to try to continue to control and enjoy your using. But that being said, life is difficult. Staying sober becomes easy, but life on life's terms is, is not easy and kind. And it's sometimes very difficult. So, but you start to like know yourself, learn, like meet yourself and understand and, and grow. So yeah, that was a long answer, but 
Yeah. Well, and I want to ask you this because I always like to start off saying, okay, so what was it like? So when, because we have people that are, a lot of people who listen have never even been to a 12-step meeting. They think that, you know, what, how it's portrayed on that show, Mom, or like in movies, is a little bit different than it is in real life. And what happens to bring us in is kind of always like, not always the, the best story, you know, it's kind of, we're brought to our knees. So Will you tell us what it was like and what happened? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, what, I believe I was born an addict. My parents, my mother drank and, and used drugs while she was pregnant with me. So I think I got, I got it. I um, came, my first drug of choice was sugar. I um, discovered drugs and alcohol when I was 16. It was fantastic for about two years. Then it became fun with problems. Um, uh, meaning like I was like, uh, like alcoholism is a brain disorder and I hadn't found the thing to treat it until I was 16. When it, when I found the thing to treat it, drugs and alcohol, I, it fixed me for, for about two years. It worked really, really well. I went from getting C's and D's in school to getting A's and A pluses. I, yeah, I became super driven, super motivated. It did all the opposite things for me that it does for most people, which is an allergic reaction, but it was a positive allergic reaction. So it was like, great. Um, then fun with problems. And I tried to, you know, I, I spent the next, uh, 10 years chasing the dragon or 14 years chasing the dragon, just like, just like trying to, to trying to make it work the way it had worked in the beginning, you know? Um, and sometimes it would, and most times it wouldn't, or sometimes it wouldn't, or, uh, and then I just, there was no inciting incident. There was no, it, I don't believe in coincidences, which I know you don't either. And I, you know, I think that people are put in our lives for a reason. And I had become friends with this girl who was at the time 12 years sober. And I knew that was no coincidence because the wheels had been turning in my head about like, it, I think it's time to put the drugs and alcohol down. I don't think these, that it's working for you the way that it used to. It was just like, it, it was like slowly dawning on me. And then I became friends with this girl and she was 12 years sober and she was off awesome. And she just didn't, um, she, she just like, I remember her saying, Oh, well, yeah, like using just isn't an option for me. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even, I, that was mind blowing. I kept waiting for her to drink. Like I kept waiting because we would go to bars together. We went to clubs together. She was always a designated driver. We went out to dinner together and I was just waiting for her to pick up. And it was like, not even like, she didn't want to, it was like, not a thing, you know? And meanwhile, I was sitting there getting drunk by myself with this girl who was my friend. I was like, that's sad, like super sad. And so that's what happened. I was sad. <laughs> I was like proceeding in a sad way. Like, and I, I just couldn't continue to lie to myself anymore that this was fun. You know, it was now more sad than it was fun. Mm. It was really hard to continue to proceed that way. I didn't want it. My mom died of alcoholism when she was 49. I saw myself becoming her. Um, I, 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 I could see my thought pattern proceeding in the way that I believe my parents' thoughts proceeded, which is like towards negativity, towards self-hatred. And I didn't like that. And I knew that was all connected to alcoholism because having grown up with, you know, my mother, as an addict, like she would dip her toe in the waters of AA or whatever and try to get sober. And she would like come back with these pearls of wisdom and then get drunk the next day, you know? Um, but I, but those pearls of wisdoms were seeds that were planted in me. So I knew like when I, when it's time to get sober, I have to go to 12 step. Like, I just know like that's the way because there's so much support. Um, and like if people could do it alone, they would. And I, so I just, 
I, I did that. And like, that's just what it was. It was just, a, it was just sadness. No, no pivotal thing happened. But I, but for me, if I had gotten a DUI or, you know, something gotten arrested, I don't know that that would have been the impetus I needed to change because it, it wouldn't have been on my terms. I am, I, I don't think that a court card would have kept me in the rooms. I think that I needed to have that spiritual emptiness, which is exactly what it was. It was just like a God, you know, we call it the God shaped hole. And I didn't realize that that's what it was. Um, I just felt sad. Um, and empty. And I knew that it was connected to being a using addict who was no longer in control of her disease. Because like I said, I'd make these like rules for myself. And then like, I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to drink and smoke pot today. And then it, you know, like the middle of the night would roll around. I'd be like, eh, it's technically tomorrow. And I, you know, break my rule. Or I'd be like, eh, I'm not going to have more than two drinks. And then I'd make really big drinks. And then I would justify smoking pot, like and whatever it was. And I was like, I know that I am not changing my mind. My disease is changing my mind. I have a disease. I am not even in control of this, like of this brain, of this thought process. So I, yeah. And that was just sad. I mean, like, I can't, I can't, you know, this is only going down, you know, like they say, like, you're just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. Like the ship is going down. Like you need to like get off. <laughs> so that's what I did. I went to AA and the rest is history basically. And yeah. do you think that, the, did you, were you ashamed at all? Because I, you hear a lot of, shame is a big word that comes around with a lot of people that they were like, Oh, I'm just like too ashamed. I just don't know if I can do that. Like I hate myself. Did you feel like that at all? I hear you talk about shame on the podcast a lot. And I don't, I never had that. I think because like, look, from where I come from, my family, my family is shameful. Like my parents are embarrassing. I'm good. I'm good. Even if I'm using, like I'm already out of winning, I'm already winning, you know, <laughs> like, like not to be whatever, but like, you know what I mean? The, the shameful part is not being an addict because being in recovery is not shameful. It's something to be super, super proud of because it's really hard. And it's like, most people don't do it. Most people don't get sober, you know? And even most people don't stay sober, you know? Of course not, because it's not easy. Life is hard. So there's no shame associated with that whatsoever. I find it to be like, I'm proud of it. But, you know, so in, in being an addict, I mean, it's a disease. I didn't ask for it. I get, you know, you're not ashamed to have a, a disease. You, you didn't, it's, you, and what am I doing? I, I'm doing something about it. You know, I'm taking care of it. I never found it to be shameful at all. I got out of my shameful circumstances. I got out of, you know, away from my, you know, um, inappropriate parents, my, you know, I set boundaries. I got, I, I lived 3000 miles away from my home. Like I, cut ties with the shameful parts of my life. And if I had continued drinking and using and gotten more and more debaucherous, then like there'd be shame. But I stopped it before it got, like it was going that way for sure. And I wouldn't say, I mean, I certainly had moments of incomprehensible demoralization, certainly. But, you know, it, I, I, I recognized and I was like, oh no, this has to change. I can't live my life being like, waking up in the morning being like, you know, oh God, you know, <laughs> what did I do? Oh, gross. So oh, do I have to apologize? You know, you just can't. So, so no, no, not, there is no shame in getting sober. And so you left, I, I love to call it dysfunction junction. You, so you bailed on dysfunction junction and you went, to, now did you embark on this journey in LA or when you were in the place 3000 miles away? No, 
I got sober in LA. I have been in LA for 15 years. Um, and I've been sober for nine. So, um, maybe 16 I've been out here. I don't even know, you know, it's home now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean the, the dysfunctional family, I actually, you know, what's funny. I, and I talk about this in the book is that I cut ties with my dad probably a month before I got sober. And I don't know if they were connected, but my dad is now, I don't even know if he's technically an addict. I think he is. He's a rageaholic. He's something. And I talk about that a lot in the book about the rage and, you know, it's all connected, right? It's all this like negative, dysfunctional, diseased, sick thinking. Um, and sometimes it manifests in a drinking problem and sometimes it manifests in other things. You know, we talk about it, sex, uh, you know, other addictions, um, for him, rage, for him, anger, you know? Um, and he used to, he's one of these, uh, if he is an addict, which I kind of think he is, he's just one of these controlled addicts where like he decided to put down drugs and he just did, but he still drinks. So I don't, you know, it's a lot of like micromanaging and trying to whatever, but he's just like really unhappy. So, and I, and he's, he's inappropriate. I talk about that in the book. <laughs> very inappropriate, um, sort of skirting the line of just like inappropriateness my entire life. And I finally set a boundary, um, like a month before I got sober and it ended up being the end of our relationship. And I was glad about it. I talk about it, you know, like being like, you know what? I cut him out of my life, not even intentionally. And I never missed him. Yeah. And isn't that telling, you know, yeah. it, that's something, you know? he's my dad. You would think that there'd be some like sadness and there wasn't. Um, so what that tells me is I like to, or I had a habit of maintaining harmful relationships, mm. um, despite what they were doing to me, you know, putting my feelings aside. And I talk about that a lot in the book too, is like, I put my feelings aside. I am taught to ignore feelings. You know, that's what we get when we are growing up and you know, households with alcoholics, like we become, uh, fixers, you know? So I was the mom and my feelings didn't matter. My, my job was to make you feel good. Even if you're the perpetrator, my job is to make you not uncomfortable. I can be uncomfortable. That's fine. That's fine. But you have to be okay. You know? So that's what I would do. And so when I finally set a boundary, it felt fantastic. Um, and it was actually, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story interesting. Um, my, so my dad sent me an inappropriate sexual text message. It was a joke and it was, um, am I allowed to use four little words on this? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Of course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> French speaking podcast. Um, I've never heard anybody swear on here. I don't think. Well, anyway, so he sent me a text message and it said, it was a joke. It was like, um, how is, uh, plowing snow, like eating pussy or something like that. And it's like, you have to slow down and be careful or you could plow into the asshole in front of you. And I got that and it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. He had been inappropriate, skirting that line of inappropriate. He never molested me, but it was like non-physical molestation my whole life. Just this skirting the line of like, like saying my friends were attractive when they were 13 years old, like touching my friends you know, a little bit too long, like that, or, or, you know what I mean? Like, like a little, a little comment, a lot of comments, a lot of like, um, and I, it was just, I just decided I'm not going to allow this anymore. And I, and I wrote back, 
that is a disgustingly inappropriate text to send your daughter. And I didn't hear from him for a year. And yeah. And when he finally emailed me, he said, if you ever want to let me know why it is you cut off contact with me, I'd love to hear it. Otherwise, have a nice life. So that's his version of an apology. So he is so, so far away from humility that he can't say, I miss you. He can't say, I'm sorry. And so, of course, I didn't miss him. Of course, I was like, oh, it, it, I felt so much lighter having him out of my life, you know? And then when I got that email a year later, I, re I felt the weight again. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is, it's so different. And when you cut out toxic people, you're so much better and you just you, you don't even realize it until they like kind of like force their way back into your life for a second and you're like ah no no get out <laughs> um yeah I forgot what the original question was I'm just going now, on did you have a therapist that helped you get to this place or were you just doing this on your own no I didn't um I have one that I have one now <laughs> but um no I just did I just uh was like I just decided to set that boundary and that's what happened. And then I started writing my book when I was two years sober and I always knew I was going to write a, a memoir. Like that was my, it was just always in my head. I think like being like an abused child, I was like, Oh, I'm writing a book one day. Like this has to be told because if I'm going through all this child abuse um, and with these alcoholic parents, these drug addict parents and having, you know, to raise my sister, other people are too. I'm not alone. I like, I know that I had that like wherewithal as a kid. And I was like, so I'm writing a book one day. And then when I was two years sober, it was just like, now is the time to write the book. And I sat down to write it. And I will tell you that God wrote the book through me. I didn't even have to work at writing the book. I sat down to write it and it poured out of me. Um, I just, all the, I think that we remember things for a reason. And so I had like specific memories that I was like, I know how I'll write this book. I'll write about this time and this time and this time. And I'll just go in chronological order. Oh, I guess this is going to be like a memoir that covers my whole life. I didn't know. I was just like, I'm going to write this story and I'm gonna write this story. And then it just flowed. And here we are. So yeah, like, no, I just, I think writing is a huge underused tool in everything. Life. I don't care if you're sober or not, doesn't matter. Like put that pen to paper and see what happens because we have thoughts up here, but when we have to put them on into sentences and we can't, that tells us something, you know, that's a, that's a tool. That's all, that's the way we learn, you know, because when you have to put it into, into a sentence, then you really start going, picking away at it. What's this idea that I have? This isn't even like a fully thought, fully you know, developed idea. This is like a, like a, like a fear that was instilled in my head by a sick parent. Oh, let me like step back and look at this in a wider perspective and really get to the bottom of it. Like really dissect it. I'm telling you, just start writing. <laughs> you know, I have to say setting a boundary for a lot of us, I can say, speaking for myself, it's really hard, right? It's really, it hurt, feels very uncomfortable. And addicts, and you've mentioned this already today, is that, you know, we have this born, you said negativity. And I call it like the self-hater, right? It's like the person's like, we're not good enough, we're not good enough, we're not good enough. I mean, all the time. And you go through life and you play those. So when you do have those inappropriate people that walk into your life again, that you thought, oh, I thought I closed the door. And you set a boundary. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, right? It's like, wait a minute is it okay that I just did that? Like you're, I mean, to have that strength and courage is amazing. You are like a warrior. Like, wow, that's like crazy. I mean, I, mean, yeah. I love that. 
like if I had had a dad who was like super awesome and I had to set a boundary, we'd be having a different conversation. But he like sucked my whole life. Like <laughs> it was like not a good childhood. So so cutting so being like I'm not gonna allow but but and that's what's interesting and that's what I talk about in the book is how our is I talk a lot about our brain. By the way, I wrote a book. It's called Down the Rabbit Hole, a memoir of abuse, addiction, and recovery. Yeah. And, uh, on the yeah. rabbit hole. And I did listen to it and I did hear you. I did. And, um, so it's, it's when, especially the chap you were talking about with your dad in the shower and that mental, cause this right now, right. That, that rabbit holing of negative thinking. Yes. Go on. And what I think that is so interesting is that we have these negative thoughts and this thing, these things that come back to us constantly and it all falls under mental health. And when you were talking about it being a disease, alcoholism being a disease, addiction being a disease, it all if you're, for insurance purposes, it falls all under mental health, right? And being able to go back and use that tool of writing is so big. It's so imperative. And the fact that you said it wasn't work to write the book, what about that? And so you wrote this, so you're, so the, if you were two years sober, so that was seven years ago. You wrote the book seven years ago. I started writing it seven years ago. It took a couple of years. I did many rewrites, many edits. Um, and, and then it sat on my desktop for like a year and a half because I did not realize that um, you can self-publish a book and then have an editor pick it up from there. I thought, I didn't realize things worked that way. I thought you either made the choice to self-publish or publish through an, a, a publisher, like a, a you know, established publisher. And so I was spending time searching for a literary agent. Um, and then it's really hard to get one if you're, if you're not already published, it's this whole catch 22, like, well, what have you already written? Well, I can't get anything published until I have the literary agent, you know, it's this, so, uh, so that was discouraging. I just kept submitting, you know, getting rejected or, or not hearing back from. And so then, then I learned that you can, no, 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 just self-publish your book. And then it gets momentum that way. And then publishers get wind of it. And then they want to, then they want, uh, they want on this ride, you know? And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that. So now I'm not even worried about that, like about it getting picked up by a publisher. I don't even care. Cause then I also learned that like you, you can lose a lot of rights and I would not like to lose creative rights to this book like you lose your rights for like seven years or something you like have to sign them away or something yeah I know and like if this were to ever get picked up and uh developed into a movie or a miniseries which is the goal um and because I want Patricia Arquette to play my mom and I want Michael Imperioli to play my dad and I want Joey King to play my sister I have it all figured out yeah but <laughs> like I wouldn't want to relinquish any uh, uh involvement with that so who cares like it's self-published it's out there um, do that if you're going to write a book and Amazon makes it super easy. Like you just do it and you just publish it and then it's just out there in the ether. Then it's up to you to like promote it. And, but anyway, like, what was your question? I'm sorry. I'm all over the place. <laughs> oh, I was just talking about the mental health and I was I was going to use, I was going to introduce the fact that you were an author now because you went out to LA and I wanted to go segue into this, but it's happening organically. So you went out to LA Having that dream, did you have the dream of being an actress from since you were little and that's why you went to LA or why'd you go to LA in the beginning? 
Well, yeah, my dad is a stagehand, so I grew up backstage. Uh, we toured with Les Mis for like seven years and Miss Saigon for like seven years, something like that. And um, I would just, yeah, so I wanted to be an actress. I would watch the show from the wings and be like, I'm going to do that. Um, but I wanted to do TV and film. So I moved out here after college. And um, so to be an actress was and still is and is always going to be the goal. But writing was always in there too. Like I said, like I was like little and I was like, I'm, I'm writing a book that that's happening. And then I wrote it and then it was, and then I loved it. I would say the creed, like scratching the creative itch in my brain has never been as fulfilled as when it was when I would sit down to write this book. It was just, like I said, this is why it feels like divinely inspired and divinely led was that like, I was like, yes, Oh yes, this felt so right. This is so, yes, this is so right. It was so fulfilling, you know, it was so healing and I didn't do it for that reason. I did it to share my story. Also as an actor, like you're told to tell your own person. It's like, well, what makes you unique? You're an actor, so why are you unique? What's unique about you? And then you spend all this time and money um, in school trying to figure out who you are. And the biggest tool I have found is sobriety and writing the book. That has been the biggest way to learn who I am. You have to take away, I would say, if you want to get to know yourself, take away the, the crutches and you'll really get to know yourself. Um, yeah. Cause you don't, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're pouring substances into your body, you'll, you'll never know who you really are, you know, but do what you want is look at, well, I'm not here to sell you sobriety, but um, yeah, like, and so as an actor, I was like, okay, maybe my thing, the thing that sets me apart, the thing that makes me unique and stand apart from the rest of every other, you know, white girl is my story, which is unique. That's the thing that makes us all unique is our own experiences. So let me go ahead and tell that. Let me like really speak my truth about that. And let's get into it. Like, that's why, I, so down the rabbit hole is referring to triggered thinking. And the chapter you were talking about, about my dad being, he was, I caught him talking to himself in the shower. And what he was doing was rabbit holing, which means falling down the, the, the triggered thinking hole in his brain. And what he was saying was, just shut the fuck up. Just, how is it, well, just shut the fuck up. And what he was doing was reliving a fight he had had with my mother the night before and how he couldn't understand how she just couldn't shut the fuck up and how if she did, you know, everything, it would have resulted in matrimonial bliss that night, but because she couldn't do what, you know. And so what it is, is it's the, it's the thought process, right? That is the ism, right? It's like, it, like if only everyone would do what we think they should do, the world would be a happy place. And if they don't, uh, I can't, I cannot rest. My, my brain just goes deeper and deeper into this cycle of I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. Here is why. Explain, 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 justify, justify, justify. That is the ism. And so when we get to like know our thought processes and then we can like, I mean, that's like, so it just opens doors. You're like, Oh, and then you can stop. You like have to become aware of what you're doing. Right. I used to be triggered at all times. I was just a triggered child. I was a triggered adolescent. I was a triggered adult. Everything sent me down the rabbit hole. If you mentioned, you know, I had an eating disorder I talk about in the book. Um, if you mentioned my eating, oh, forget it. Like, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to get 
an eight ball of cocaine. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get so skinny. I'm going to go have my eating disorder back. I'm going to, you'll see, I'm going to show you, you're not, and look at how quickly I just fall down this path of negative thinking. I don't do that anymore because you don't have to. So I just became aware and then you start to change. You become aware. That's the first step. And then you just can start making changes. So. Well, I have to say like inspirational because if you think about it, for one, going to LA is a big deal, right? A, a 3,000 miles away from home. And going into a field that we know that maybe one in how many thousands gets picked. Okay, so that's kind of scary, right? At least for me, that sounds a little scary, right? So it's scary, but you went, you got over that hurdle of fear. And then you meet this friend. She's sober. God put her in your life. And you went to a meeting and you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, that is kind of scary. Like for me, walking into a meeting was like the scariest place I've ever been. I mean, I say it all the time on my podcast. I'm like, I got married. I had babies. I bought cars, houses, everything else. But going to that meeting and raising my hand and saying, oh yeah, I'm here. And I'm that was a little frightening. Do you remember that? Or did you not? Because I feel no fear or you worked so hard to not have it today. No, I... You know what it is? It's not, it wasn't so much scary as it was sad because uh -huh. I, knew I was saying goodbye to my best friend. Drugs mm -hmm. and alcohol are my best friend. And what was scary, okay, what was definitely scary was the fear that I was going to fail, um, mm -hmm. which I think is a recurring theme in my life. Um, the feeling that I'm going to do this and then I'm not going to want to do this anymore. And I'm going to go back out there and use. Meanwhile, there's going to be all this AA in my head and I'm not going to be happy using, but I'm also not going to be happy sober. And I will say sometimes that feels correct. <laughs> like sometimes there has been times in sobriety where I've been like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like it. I don't mm -hmm. like this, you know, and I just sit on my hands, just sit on your hands. You know what? Go to sleep come back tomorrow. Like you're just done with today, <laughs> you know? Um, because, but the, but I have a very, I think it's a healthy fear to have that you're going to relapse because sometimes that's what keeps you in the seat. Yeah. Many times that's what kept me in the seat. Like, you know what? I don't want to come back and raise my hand as a newcomer again. Like mm -hmm. I don't have that kind of humility. I, I, I salute anyone who relapses and comes back and identifies as a newcomer. Like that's the bravest thing. I, cause I don't think I have that, you know, I don't think I have that humility, that kind of, um, you know, to, and I, I, I say this all the time. No one cares how much time you have except you, but I would try to say that to myself after a relapse and be like, no, I can't do it. Everybody cares. Like nobody cares, but, but I would just not, I don't want to feel that pain again of that be of being new again. It's sad. And I absolutely remember my first meeting. I, I walked into, it was a bliss cafe here in Los Angeles, which is sadly closing due to this pandemic. Um, Martin and his wife, Raina, who run it, Martin's been sober 20 something years or whatever. And uh, they have meetings there all day, every day, or they did. And I walked in and I sat down and I raised my hand as a newcomer and I cried and I cried and I cried and I spoke my truth. And, you know, people come up to you like they do and they give you their phone numbers and they tell you to get a sponsor and they give you a daily reflections and they give you their big book and, and, and there you go and you're in. And it was just, I cried because I was just, I, I was, I was saying goodbye to my best friend and I was afraid that in two weeks from now or in two months from now or in two years from now, I'm not going to want to do this anymore. And I'm not going to know 
what else to do. And when I have had those feelings of, I don't know if I want to be sober anymore. I don't know if I like this 12 step program that I'm in. I I certainly don't like a lot of the people that I'm meeting. (laughs) Not a lot, but some, you know, you're going to meet personalities that you just don't like. Um, uh, I, the thing that has kept me in my seat, um, is that I don't want to go out like that because then where do I go? Uh, All roads for me lead back to sobriety. Um, but I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to feel the pain again of being a newcomer. And I don't want to go out like that because then I'm going to have a bad taste in my mouth about a 12 step program. And that's not really accurate. I'm just in a bad mood. I'm just what hungry, lonely, angry, tired, something like it's something going on with me. I love the adage that whenever there, whenever I am disturbed, it is some, it is a problem within me. Um, because that means I can change it. That means I can fix it. Um, it's really, so it's like, okay. And I used to say, I would be like, well, this, cause like, I have an idea of what sobriety is before I get sober and then I get sober and it's not that. And, and like, I'd have my friend who was super sober, you know, like 12 years at the time she was like, well, are you sober? Like, what do you expect? Like, I, I didn't know. I expected cash and prizes. I expected God to like, like shower me with rewards for being sober. And I didn't even know. I thought I expected that until it didn't happen. And I had a resentment and I was like, well, why do I, why am I angry? And it's like, oh, because I guess I had expectations that I didn't even know about. Um, and all I can really expect is if I work a program, I'll stay sober. And I can't even expect that. Like, I just, <laughs> just like, I might stay sober, you know? Um, but like life doesn't suddenly start rewarding you. And that's a hard pill to swallow, especially when you have to swallow it like repeatedly when you're like, but I'm doing it, but I'm doing the deal. I'm doing the steps. I have a sponsor. I sponsor other people. I'm being of service. What do you mean? You know? Um, and you just have to trust like, it'll happen eventually. You just have to, you'll learn patience. I'll tell you what, like I'm not naturally patient, but I've had to exercise patience a lot, um, in sobriety just because if I don't, impatience will take me out, you know, it'll lead me back to a drink. It has wanted to, but I don't want to go out like that, you know, I, because then what road am I traveling down? Like I always say, like, there's like a God path in the brain and there's a diseased path in the brain. Right now I'm on the God path. Since I got sober, I take that path. I take the path of good. I take the God directed path. You know, I'm going that way. If I, if I get angry and I decide to leave this, leave sobriety, I'm suddenly on the negative path and now I'm going that way. And how hard is it to then switch back to the other path? It's just easier to stay on this path. Like somebody said in a meeting, it's easier to stay than it is to come back. And I hear that, you know, so just stay like, yeah, you're going to have hard days. We'll just have it. And you know, what's interesting is like, I keep having to be given permission to have my feelings and I'm nine years sober. And like, this just happened again. Like someone was like, you know, cause I got fired. I got fired in the, in the, you know, as a result of the pandemic. And I was, and I was not expecting it. I expected to fully have a job once this thing was over. And, um, I had all this anxiety and my boyfriend had to say, and I, and I said, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this anxiety. And he's like, well, it's okay to feel anxious. And I was like, that's so funny that you just had to tell me that it's because I didn't, you're right. How about you just feel anxious for a little while, you know, and then just (laughs) 
then, then you feel better. And it, it just, I'm always trying to change the bad feeling. And I didn't even realize that I'm still, I'm still, I, I think for the rest of my life, I will be peeling back the layers of the onion, but that's a really fun and exciting thing to do. Once you start doing it, it's less scary. It's more exciting. You're like, Oh, I just learned something about myself. Yes. I'm always trying to change my feelings. Okay, good. Now I know that now I don't, now I can start stop stopping that, <laughs> you know, I can notice it when it happens instead of just like falling down this you know, rabbit hole. Yeah. You know? Look at that. Well, it's because I think that once we stop, when we realize that our best friend alcohol has been put down and we don't have the craving for it, and then we can have this life that's so full of all these emotions, but it takes some time, right? To even identify. I don't, I, I mean, I came in and somebody said like, are you feeling anxious? I'm like, I don't even know what the hell that is. What is anxious? I have no idea. Cold or hot. Let's keep going. <laughs> I just feel frustrated. <laughs> I don't know yet, you know. And it's taking the time. Kate, it has been so awesome. You have to tell me this because so I have a new question and you're my first person I'm going to ask it to. So what do you do to keep busy living sober? Ooh, I, I, I have a list of things to do always by my side. And so I'm always checking something off because that's I'm super type A like that. Um, I mean, I during this quarantine, I have been doing so much creative pursuing, you know, I, I, you know, here's what I do to stay busy getting sober. I enjoy things like I never enjoy them before, enjoyed them before. I, when I walk my dog, I like notice, I notice flowers and this sounds cheesy as hell, but I do. I literally like notice a bird, like, and that's just, that's what happens when you get sober. You really just, you're, eyes start opening you'll hear it like called a new pair of glasses i it's like it's like i'm polishing my new pair of glasses every day and things look amazing i am enjoying my life in a real serene way unlike any manufactured by drugs or alcohol way that i used to enjoy life um and that whether that be i go to the beach once a week with my i go to the dog beach with my dog because he likes to dig a hole um we go to the beach once a week. I, uh, I love to read. Somebody asked me, um, how do you re decompress at night? Cause she like drinks and she was like, well, what do you do? And I was like, I read, I like to read until I fall until I'm tired enough to go to sleep. Isn't that cute? Or like, <laughs> like, isn't that old lady ish? Like in like a cute kind of like, aw, homie kind of way. Like I love, I love that I do that. Like I read in bed with my dog. Like I enjoy a date night with my boyfriend where we're not getting annihilated. We're just enjoying each other and we have great conversations and we, we watch Jeopardy like old people and eat dinner at 6 PM. And it's like beautiful. You know, I just, I enjoy, I enjoy my life like, like a hundred percent. So that's, that's what I do. Oh my God. Can I tell you that it comes through? It comes through. I can feel it. It's contagious. It's Yay. Oh, I hope it is. I hope it's not annoying. Oh my God. It's not annoying at all. It's wonderful. Because I think that sometimes people perceive the alcoholic and the addict in recovery as a glum lot, we say, and people that aren't really doing anything but your life sounds full. And when I first started talking to you that we didn't record is that I said, what, how are you doing with this pandemic? And you're like, I'm loving it. And I love that because we need that. We need everybody to just get to this place where we're happy and we're living in these four walls and it's been five months or however long, who knows, we live in time outland and it doesn't matter. 
but you're doing it and you're living one day at a time in your life in this book. I mean, we will put a little, we're going to put a link for your book on here. We're going to put a links on how to reach you. And it's been so wonderful getting to know you. When you do your next book, you have to come back and tell us people, maybe in a year, tell us what you're doing. And if your movie's gotten launched or anything, any news, will you come back? Oh my God, yes. Of course I will. Oh, thank you so much. This was so fun. Oh my gosh, you're oh. adorable. Behind you, is that a picture of your dog? That's, that's a painting of my dog. Yes, I, you know, I, I I'm not, a, I, I don't want to say I'm not a good artist. I'm just doing it, just like you said. It's just free. It just happens. It's happening. It's what I've been doing a lot of during this pandemic. So, all these pictures behind you. I did. That's amazing. Is that your wait? Who's that's that guy? Oh my God, those are really, really, really good. You're like Picasso. That's a great picture. Thank oh you. So it's so awesome. Well, thank you again. And everybody, until next time, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye.